1: Did he have a right to feel this way? Was this really forbidden by law? This wonderful, frightening emotion? And his plans were thorough. Every risk had been closely considered. Now, Ron Carnivon, ruthless convict, was ready to loot the wrecked spaceship of its sapphire treasure and thrust his warped power around the entire antagonistic emv triangle the robot who wanted to know by harry harrison and wreck off triton by alfred koppel that's next on the lost sci-fi podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode we've got two short sci-fi stories for you today during our first anniversary celebration Author Harry Harrison makes his debut on the podcast with a short story I really love. Harrison was born in Stamford, Connecticut in 1925 and released his first short sci-fi story in 1951. After finishing high school in 1943, Harrison was drafted into the United States Army Air Forces during World War II. He was a prolific writer, who wrote more than 15 novels and about a hundred short stories. He wrote the novel Make Room, Make Room, which was the basis for the 1973 film starring Charlton Heston, Soylent Green. I love that movie. First up on our one-year anniversary doubleheader, a story from the March 1958 issue of Fantastic Universe magazine. Did he have a right to feel this way? Was this really forbidden by law, this wonderfully frightening emotion? Our story begins on page 91, The Robot Who Wanted to Know, by Harry Harrison. That was the trouble with Filer 13B-445K. He wanted to know things that he had just no business knowing. Things that no robot should be interested in, much less investigate. But Filer was a very different type of robot. The trouble with the blonde in Tier 22 should have been warning enough for him. He had hummed out of the stack room with a load of books and was cutting through Tier 22 when he saw her bending over for a volume on the bottom shelf. As he passed behind her, he slowed down then stopped a few yards further on. He watched her intently, a strange glint in his metallic eyes. As the girl bent over, her short skirt rode up to display an astonishing length of nylon-clad leg. That it was a singularly attractive leg should have been of no interest to a robot. Yet it was. He stood there, looking until the blonde turned suddenly and noticed his fixed attention. "'If you were human, Buster,' she said, "'I would slap your face for being rude. "'But since you are a robot, "'I would like to know what your little photon-filled eyes find so interesting.' "'Without a microsecond's hesitation, Filer answered, "'Your seam is crooked.' "'Then he turned and buzzed away. "'The blonde shook her head in wonder.' straightened the offending seam, and chopped up another credit to the honor of electronics. She would have been very surprised to find out what Filer had been looking at. He had been staring at her leg. Of course, he hadn't lied when he answered her, since he was incapable of lying, but he had been looking at a lot more than the crooked seam. Filer was facing a problem that no other robot had ever faced before. Love, romance, and sex were fast becoming a passionate interest for him. That this interest was purely academic goes without saying, yet it was still an interest. It was the nature of his work that first aroused his curiosity about the realm of Venus. A Filer is an amazingly intelligent robot and there aren't very many being manufactured. You will find them only in the greatest libraries, dealing with only the largest and most complex collections. To call them simply librarians is to demean all librarians, and to call their work simple. Of course, very little intelligence is required to shelf books or stamp cards, but this sort of work has long been handled by robots that are little more than wheeled IBM machines. The cataloging of human information has always been an incredibly complex task. The Filer robots were the ones who finally inherited this job. It rested easier on their metallic shoulders than it ever had on the rounded ones of human librarians. Besides a complete memory, Filer had other attributes that are usually connected with the human brain. Abstract connections, for one thing. If he was asked for books on one subject, He could think of related books in other subjects it might be referred to. He could take a suggestion, pyramid it into a category, then produce tactile results in the form of a mountain of books. These traits are usually confined to Homo sapiens. They are the things that pulled him that last long step above his animal relatives. If Filer was more human than other robots, he had only his builders to blame. He blamed no one. He was just interested. All filers are interested. They are designed that way. Filer 9B367O, librarian at the university in Tashkent, had turned his interest to language due to the immense amount of material at his disposal. He spoke thousands of languages and dialects, all he could find, and enjoyed a fine reputation in linguistic circles. That was because of his library. Filer 13b, he of the interest in girls' legs, labored in the dust-filled corridors of New Washington. In addition to all the gleaming new microfiles, he had access to tons of ancient printed-on-paper books that dated back for centuries. Filer had found his interest in the novels of that bygone time. At first he was confused by all the references to love and romance, as well as the mental and physical suffering that seemed to accompany them. He could find no satisfactory or complete definition of the terms and was intrigued. Intrigue led to interest, and finally, absorption. Unknown to the world at large, he became an authority on love. Very early in his interest, Feiler realized that this was the most delicate of all human institutions. He therefore kept his researches a secret, and the only records he kept were in the capacious circuits of his brain. Just about the same time, he discovered that he could do research in vivo to supplement the facts in his books. This happened when he found a couple locked in embrace in the zoology section. Quickly stepping back into the shadows, Filer had turned up the gain on his audio pickup. The resulting dialogue he heard was dull, to say the least, a sort of wasted shadow of the love lyrics he knew from his books. This comparison was interesting and enlightening. After that, he listened to male-female conversations whenever he had the opportunity. He also tried to observe women from the viewpoint men, and vice versa. This is what had led him to the lower limb observation in Tier 22. It also led him to his ultimate folly. A researcher sought his aid a few weeks later and fumbled out a thick pile of reference notes. A card slid from the notes and fell unnoticed to the floor. Filer picked it up and handed it back to the man, who put it away with mumbled thanks. After the researcher had been supplied with the needed books and gone, Filer sat back and reread the card. He had only seen it for a split second, and upside down at that, but that was all he needed. The image of the card was imprinted forever in his brain. Filer mused over the card, and the first glimmerings of an idea assailed him. The card had been an invitation to a masquerade ball. He was well acquainted with this type of entertainment. It was stock in trade for his dusty novels. People went to them disguised as various romantic figures. Why couldn't a robot go, disguised as people? Once the idea was fixed in his head, there was no driving it out. It was an unrobot thought and a completely unrobot action. Filer had a glimmering of the first time that he was breaking down the barrier between himself and and the mysteries of romance. This only made him more eager to go, and of course he did. Of course he didn't dare purchase a costume, but there was no problem in obtaining some ancient curtains from one of the storerooms. A book on sewing taught him the technique, and a plate from a book gave him the design for his costume. It was predestined that he go as a cavalier, with a finely ground point, he printed an exact duplicate of the invitation on heavy cardstock. His mask was part face and part mask. It offered no barrier to his talent or technology. Long before the appointed date, he was ready. The last days were filled with browsing through stories about other masquerade balls and learning the latest dance steps. So enthused was he by the idea— that he never stopped to ponder the strangeness of what he was doing. He was just a scientist, studying a species of animal. Man, or rather, woman. The night finally arrived, and he left the library late, with what looked like a package of books, and of course wasn't. No one noticed him enter the patch of trees on the library grounds. If they had they would certainly never have connected him with the elegant gentleman who swept out of the far side a few moments later. Only the empty wrapping paper bore mute evidence of the disguise. Filer's manner in his new personality was all that might be expected of a superior robot who has studied a role to perfection. He swept up the stairs to the hall, three at a time, and tendered his invitation with a flourish. Once inside, he headed straight for the bar and threw down three glasses of champagne right through a plastic tube to a tank in his thorax. Only then did he let his eye roam over the assembled beauties. It was a night for love, and of all the women in the room, there was only one he had eyes for. Filer could see instantly that she was the belle of the ball and the only one to approach. Could he do anything else in memory of 50,000 heroes of those long-forgotten books? Carol Ann Van Dam was bored as usual. Her face was disguised, but no mask could hide the generous contours of her bosom and flanks. All her usual suitors were there, dancing attendants behind their dominoes, lusting after her youth and her father's money. It was all too familiar, and she had trouble holding back her yawns, until the pack was courteously but irrevocably pushed aside by the wide shoulders of the stranger. He was like a lion among wolves as he swept through them and faced her. This is our dance, he said, in a deep voice rich with meaning. Almost automatically, she took the proffered hand, unable to resist this man with the strange gleam in his eyes. In a moment, they were waltzing, and it was heaven. His muscles were like steel, yet he was light and graceful as a god. Who are you? she whispered. Your prince, come to take you away from all this, he murmured in her ear you talk like a fairy tale. She laughed. This is a fairy tale, and you are the heroine. His words struck fire from her brain, and she felt the thrill of an electric current sweep through her. It had, just a temporary short circuit. While his lips murmured the words she had wanted to hear all her life into her ear, His magic feet led her through the great doors onto the balcony. Once their words blended with action, and hot lips burned against hers. One hundred two degrees, to be exact. That was what the thermostat was set at. Please, she breathed, weak with this new passion. I must sit down. He sat next to her, her hands in his soft yet vice-like grip. They talked the words that only lovers know until a burst of music drew her attention. Midnight, she breathed. Time to unmask, my love. Her mask dropped off. But he, of course, did nothing. Come, come, she said. You must take your mask off, too. It was a command. And, of course, as a robot, he had to obey. With a flourish, he pulled off his face Carol Ann screamed first, then burned with anger. What sort of scheme is this, you animated tin can? It was love, dear one, love that brought me here tonight and sent me to your arms. The answer was true enough, though Filer couched it in the terms of his disguise. When the soft words of her darling came out of the harsh mouth of the electronic speaker— Carol Ann screamed again. She knew she had been made a fool of. Who sent you here like this? Answer! What is the meaning of this disguise? Answer! 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 You articulated pile of cams and rods! Filer tried to sort out the questions and answer them one at a time, but she gave him no time to speak. It's the filthiest trick of all time! Sending you here, disguised as a man? You, a robot, a nothing, a two-legged IBM machine with a Victrola attached. Making believe you're a man when you're nothing but a robot. Suddenly, Filer was on his feet, the words crackling and mechanical from his speaker. I'm a robot. The soft voice of love was gone, and replaced by that of mechanical despair. Thought, chase, thought through the whirling electronic circuits of his brain. And they were all the same thought. I'm a robot, a robot. I must have forgotten I was a robot. What can a robot be doing here with a woman? A robot can't kiss a woman. A woman can't love a robot. Yet she said she loved me. Yet I'm a robot. A robot. With a mechanical shudder, he turned from the girl and clanked away. With each step, his steel fingers plucked at his clothes and plastic flesh until they came away in shards and pieces. Fragments of cloth marked his trail away from the woman, and within a hundred paces, he was as steel naked as the day he was built. Through the garden and down to the street he went the thoughts in his head going in ever-tighter circles. It was uncontrolled feedback, and soon his body followed his brain. His legs went faster, his motors whirled more rapidly, and the central lubrication pump in his thorax churned like a mad thing. Then, with a single metallic screech, he raised both arms and plunged forward. His head hit a corner of a stair and the granite point thrust into the thin casing. Metal grounded to metal, and all the complex circuits that made up his brain were instantly discharged. Robot Filer 13B-445K was quite dead. That was what the report read that the mechanic sent in the following day. Not dead, but permanently impaired, to be disposed of. Yet, strangely enough, that wasn't what the mechanic said when he examined the metallic corpse. A second mechanic had helped in the examination. It was he who had spun off the bolts and pulled out the damaged lubrication pump. Here's the trouble, he had announced. Malfunction in the pump. Piston broke. Jammed the pump. The knees locked from lack of oil. Then the robot fell and shorted out his brain. The first mechanic wiped grease off his hands and examined the faulty pump. Then he looked from it to the gaping hole in the chest. You could almost say he died of a broken heart. They both laughed, and he threw the pump into the corner with all the other cracked, dirty, broken, and discarded machinery. The Robot Who Wanted to Know by Harry Harrison The second half of our first anniversary double feature takes us back to 1951 and it's the second story we've showcased from Alfred Koppel. His plans were thorough. Every risk had been closely considered. Now Ron Carnivon, ruthless convict, was ready to loot the wrecked spaceship of its sapphire treasure. Planet Stories magazine included this Koppel story in its November 1951 publication. Turn to page 73 for Wreck-Off Triton by Alfred Koppel. Ron Carnivon had been the skipper of the late Thunderbird, and it was common knowledge in every port of the EMV triangle that he had scuttled her. There was a price on his head, and the high space guard was combing the space lanes for him, and for the Thunderbird. For the Thunderbird was a treasure ship. But Carnarvon was a cautious man and no fool for all that he'd committed baratry, He left the Thunderbird in a Trojan orbit a million miles off Triton, ruptured and spilling corpses into space. He took a spaceboat and jetted sunward to the Holcomb Foundation outpost on Oberon. Then he stowed away on the mail ship to Canalopolis, still carrying the chart that showed the Thunderbird's position. In the canal city, Carnivan evaded the lax guard cordons and found himself a renegade Martian hypnosurgeon to change his face and fingerprints. From then on, it was easy. Across Curtis Major by Sand Ski to Marsport, posing as a prospector. It was there that he met and hired Pop Wills and the Carefree. Ron Carnivon acted with characteristic caution when he chose Pop and the Carefree to do the ghoul work on the ship he had murdered. Pop's ship was a rusty bucket, but well enough fixed to reach Triton, where the Thunderbird's corpse orbited, her vault heavy with plutonian sapphires, and Pop needed work badly he was almost too broke to outfit his ship for the flight carnivon noted with curling lip that most of pop's assets had long ago been liquidated to buy gin the long years in space had taken a toll on the old man actually a greater toll than even carnivon could have imagined pop and the carefree fitted in with carnivon's plans to perfection Pop had been in trouble more than once with the high space guard. Pop was an old soak who wouldn't be missed. When something happened to the carefree, the rest of the beached wrecks in Yaki would only shake their heads and agree that Pop had pushed the old bucket a few G's too hard somewhere. That was just the end the wrecker had in mind for Pop when his job was finished, too. It was only reasonable. He couldn't let Pop live to tell the guard that Ron Carnivon had had a hypnosurgical metamorphosis. Even a fortune in sapphires couldn't buy the high space guard. It was far too well healed with Holcomb Foundation money, and it took its duties to the inhabitants of the Earth-Mars-Venus triangle seriously. A cautious man would realize this and take the proper steps. In this case, the proper steps would be the elimination of Pop Wills when his job was done. But everyone makes mistakes. Carnivon made one when he selected Pop and the Carefree. With all the rusty hulks dotting the ramps of Yaki, and with all the even rustier skippers there, he should have hired someone else. Anyone else. Ron Carnivon should have connected Pop Wills with the 12-year-old cabin boy of the Thunderbird. The youngster's name had been Wills, too. But, of course, Carnivon couldn't have been expected to remember everything. Just coincidence. But those things do happen. So these two lifted from Mars together, a captain who had wrecked his own ship and a gin-soaked old man whose only son had died because of it. And neither knew the other for what he was. To Carnivon, Pop was just a fall guy doing his job in proper sucker fashion. And to Pop Wills, Carnivon was just John Smith, who wanted to go to grid M33-2254-89-OK off Triton, and was willing to pay well for the privilege. The wrecker ordered the course, and Pop set it. Mars began to dwindle, and the belt loomed up ahead. The carefree threaded her way through the rocky maze, and on past Saturn and Uranus in a free-falling arc. She was slow, but in space, slow is a relative term. The outer planets were in triple conjunction, and with their help, the old boat made time. Carnivon checked the course daily, and Pop accepted the corrections without protest. After all, John Smith was paying for the trip, and he seemed to know what he was doing. No questions asked. Carnivon liked that. No questions, no trouble. He couldn't have been more wrong. It's hard to say in mere words what old Pop must have felt when he picked up the wreck of the Thunderbird on the radar. He recognized the image, of course. The Thunderbird was unique among spacers. Then he checked her position against the chart that Carnivon had marked and realized why they had come. He realized, too, who this John Smith was, and hate pulsed through him in sickening waves. Pop wasn't a brave man, and he was past his prime, but he could still hate. Almost without conscious thought, Pop broke out the ultrawave and began calling the guard. He broadcast full particulars, coordinates, descriptions, everything. He was at it when Carnivon found him and sent him crashing against the control panels with a smashing overhand right to the mouth. Pop sprawled on the metal decking and watched the wrecker carefully smash every communicating device on the ship's panel. There was a throbbing pain in his head where he had struck the shabbily padded control console, and the thick taste of blood was in his bruised mouth. He watched Carnarvon like an animal, a hurt, impotently raging beast, and he began to be afraid. Even his hate couldn't spare him that, for Pop was afraid to die, and he knew just what his chances were now. Carnarvon, on the other hand, didn't waste time hating. He didn't know why Pop had called Copper, and he didn't really care. Pop wasn't important. The sapphires in the Thunderbirds' vault, they were important. He'd come too far to abandon them now. It would take nine minutes for Pop's radio appeal to reach the nearest guard base, Carnivon calculated, and it would take six hours for the fastest guard ship to reach them after that. He could board the Thunderbird and loot her in not more than two hours. That would still give the carefree a four-hour start on the guard, and in deep space, four hours were as good as four thousand. Carnivon still wasn't worried. The wrecking of the Thunderbird had been the work of months, and he wasn't going to panic now. Ron Carnivon wasn't that sort of a criminal. Blaster in hand, he motioned Pop to his feet. He wondered vaguely just why the old man had taken such a chance. He couldn't have any notions of collecting the reward for Carnarvon. The amount was less than the amount he was getting for doing this, Carnarvon smiled bleakly, salvage job. And the old man was a coward. He could see it in the trembling of the blue-veined hands, in the shifting faintness of the watery blue eyes. The wrecker shrugged aside the thoughts, as unimportant, and set to work. With a blaster in his ribs, Pop Wills did as he was told. he braked the carefree to a stop twenty miles from the ruptured hulk of the liner. There were beads of sweat standing out on Pop's forehead, and his hands shook on the firing console. A thin trickle of dark blood marred his stubbled chin. His battered lips were unsteady. For a few bad moments, Pop Wills thought Carnarvon was going to blast him as soon as the carefree lost way. But then even his gin-soaked mind began to understand that the end wasn't quite yet. Carnarvon needed help looting the murdered liner. If he was going to lay his hands on her valuables before the guard appeared, he'd have to get Pop working with him. Maybe if Pop had been more of a man, he could have stopped the record cold right there. But long years of boozing had left Pop weak. He could hate well enough, but fear conquers even hate. And that blaster that followed him in every movement made Pop's thin blood run cold. Life, even a life like Pop Will's, was better than the black void of death. Pop was ready to buy a few more minutes of life at almost any price, even from the man who had killed his boy. The old man was like a rusty watch spring, battered and wound to the utmost limit, and jammed there. Frozen by the reality of that ugly blaster and the cold eyes behind it, Pop would help Carnarvon. He couldn't help himself and his hate expanded to include his own senile weakness. The Thunderbird spun slowly in the light of the faraway sun, the rent in her hull gaping like a mouthful of jagged teeth. She had been a beautiful thing once, but she was ugly now in death. She had not died gracefully. Her back had been broken and her innards scattered. She orbited sullenly, and around her spun the broken fragments of her inner body, the bloated, frozen corpses of the men she'd carried. Against the backdrop of the stars and the blaze of the Milky Way, she seemed to be a blot on the heavens. Pop Wills and Ron Carnivon watched her, each of them with his own thoughts. Then the wrecker motioned toward the suit lockers with his blaster. It took a bit of doing to get into his own pressure suit and still keep the blaster pointed at Wills, but Carnivon was a large man and supple, and he managed it well enough. The Carefree had no escape boat, so there was nothing for it but to rely on the soup motors to take them across to the Thunderbird. It promised to be slow going, for the soup motors were weak and produced only one-tenth g of thrust. Almost anything thrown out ahead by a man in a spacesuit was enough to stop him cold. The recoil overcame the suit motor with ridiculous ease, and though the motor labored mightily, it would take a long while to reestablish the original direction of movement. But Carnivon had an answer for that, too. A quick check of the radar showed that there were still no guard ships within hailing distance. Carnivon's original estimate of the time it would take the space guard to arrive on the scene turned out to be surprisingly accurate. He connected his suit to Pops with a short cable and snap hooks, and together they made their way to the carefree's dorsal valve. Carnivon had no intention of sweating out a long, slow crossing to the hulk, so he ran the lock pressure up high and waited until the outer hatch was lined up with the derelict liner. Then, with a sudden movement, he spun the wheel and popped the outer portal. Pop and Carnivon shot into space like grotesque bolas. The Thunderbird loomed up ahead. Pop kept his mouth shut and his eyes open. He saw more than an old man might be expected to see, too. For instance, he saw that Carnivon, cautious though he might be, had neglected to take an extra magazine for his blaster. That meant that there were just three shots in the weapon, one of which, Pop figured, would be used against the vault of the scuttled liner. Not that the old man was making any plans. He was still too weighted by his fear and his sense of impotence for that. He merely noticed and prayed to the gods of space that one of those shots in the blaster might not be meant for him. As they drew near the liner, Pop felt nausea churning his stomach. The ship was surrounded by satellites, space-bloated bodies, naked and misshapen in the bitter light of the dim sun that reflected off the pitted flanks of the burst vessel. Spread-eagled grotesquely, the corpses circled their ship. Puffy things of horror with staring eyes and extended fingers. Other things, too, circled the hulk. Small, commonplace items. A clock, a chair, shattered crockery. Tiny, inconsequential things, all mutely accusing, all muttering silently, that their ship had been betrayed by someone who should have protected her. Pop glanced over at Carnivon. Through the steel-glass bubble of his helmet, he could see the wrecker's face. There was no expression on it, other than concentration and greed. Pop knew about greed. He'd lived with greed and degradation a lot in his last few years. He hated Carnivon even more now for having reminded him, but he was still too sick with futility to do more than tell himself that he had done all he could do. He had called the guard, after all, and then, for an awful moment, he found himself regretting that he had done even that, and thereby lost all hope of life. Their magnetic shoes touched the Thunderbirds' hull with a sound faintly carried through the air in their suits. They stood on the curving surface, etched in black against the starry sky. A few feet away from them, the Terminator was inching toward them as the derelict rotated slowly. With Carnivon leading the way, they clumped heavily to the ripped and tortured hull plates, where the Thunderbird had been sundered. By the light of their helmet lights, Pop could see the thoroughness of the Wrecker's work. He had been her captain, this Carnivon, and he had known just how to murder her. The outer hull was a shambles, and the pressure hull hulled in three places. It had been a thorough job. Only one prepared for the sudden horror of her death could have survived it. Pop Wills thought of his boy, and sobbed. The dark companionways were empty, blown clean by the violence of the Thunderbird's death. Ron Carnivon led the way down into the ship to the purser's office and the vault. Rubble cluttered the small room. Bulkheads bent awry, and pipes and wires littered the deck. Carnivon turned Pop loose and set him to work cleaning out a path to the vault. Pop's breath was coming in shuddering, grating gasps when he finished the work a half hour later. Carnivon nodded approvingly and motioned him away from the vault. Pop watched while the wrecker braced himself and took careful aim at the vault's lock mechanism with the blaster. There was a searing flash of blue flame, and red sparks showered as the oxy hydrogen bolt sliced into the steel of the door. Pop found himself praying fervently that it would take two more shots. Carnivon fired again, and the tiny room blazed. Pop muttered shakily under his breath, and waiting for the wrecker to blast just once more. The lock surrendered in a trickle of white-hot slag, and Pop felt himself sink low. There was still that one shot left for him, and he wasn't needed now. The door swung open and Carnarvon knelt to rifle the vault. When he at last straightened, he held a pool of jagged blue fire in his gloved hand. The gems sparkled with a life of their own. Two dozen faceted beauties, each worth a king's ransom, and each bought with a man's life. Presently they stood again on the outer hull, under an unreal canopy of stars. Nearby, a ghastly satellite was swinging inward toward the ship. Pop stared at it and back to Carnivon. He began to understand what the wrecker planned. He was going to leave him here, on the wreck, and he would die here. He understood that the shot that remained in the blaster wasn't for him after all. Carnivon wasn't going to waste it on him. There was a spanner in the wrecker's hand, and he now advanced purposefully toward Pop Wills. Pop stepped backwards, retreating from the heavy figure of the wrecker. Fear was surging in waves through him, fear mixed with blind hate and contempt for himself and his senile weakness. Overhead, against the stars, the awful satellite drew nearer. Carnivon reduced the power in his magnetic shoes and moved lightly toward Pop, the spanner raised to strike. The old man stumbled against a long shard of steel on the hull that floated upward at his touch. Fear paralyzed him, and he stood now, waiting for the blow of the spanner that would smash his helmet and leave him a distended corpse spinning through space. Above him, the satellite spun inward, Pop glanced up into the agonized, dead face of a twelve-year-old boy. He shrieked. The sound deafened him in the bubble of his helmet. All the fear and weakness turned to a bitter hate and surged forward in one insane motion toward his tormentor. The long shard of steel came to hand like a lance. The rusted, warped old watch spring that was Pop Will's recoiled and unwound. In one raging moment, he charged Carnivon. Carnivon evaded the clumsy charge instinctively. With an almost unconscious motion, he raised the blaster and fired point-blank. The searing bolt caught Pop Wills in the chest and spun him around. Tattered ribbons of charred flesh and melted metal from his suit intermingled. He curled inward upon himself in an awkward, graceless fashion and sank to the hull plates, a nimbus of ice flowing from the gap in his suit as the water vapor and blood spurted into the vacuum. But there was something strangely like a smile on his face as life left him. Pop had conquered his fear at last. But Carnivon, on the other end of the bolt of fire that had ended Pop Will's life, spun outward, away from the Thunderbird, away from the Carefree. End over end, driven by the fiery recoil of his own weapon, at a speed considerably less than the muzzle velocity of the blast, but still much higher than the best speed of the feeble soup motor, Ron Carnivon spun into space, out and away, the precious sapphire spilling out of his hand, glittering in the faint sunlight, as they took up their orbits about him like tiny, mocking moonlets. Message priority AA. High Space Guard Corvette M-233 to EMV Base 1 Oberon. Stop. In response to alarm broadcast by RS Carefree, comma, this vessel proceeded to grid m thirty three twenty two fifty four 89 okay Comma Located there missing RS Thunderbird. Stop. Radar search located missing Captain Ron Carnivon, wanted for murder, and Baratry stop. Carnivon unaccountably found at considerable distance from vessel, dead of asphyxiation due to exhaustion of pressure suit supplies. Stop. Case may be considered closed. Stop. End message. Quinby, Corvette M233, Commander HSG. That's Wreck-Off Triton by Alfred Koppel. In two days on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, they were like creatures painted by a drunken artist, ghastly, utterly repulsive caricatures of humanity, yet twisted though they were they were still human. Monsters That Once Were Men by Robert Silverberg. That's next in two days as we wrap up our first anniversary week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. With at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.